Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. If you've been around church for any amount of time, there's a good chance you've heard the creation story a time or two. We usually end that story with how Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and were cast out of Eden. But in telling it over and over again, some of the details may have run together or lost their shine. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright walks us through this passage again to help us see the Garden of Eden, its two trees, and Adam and Eve's choice anew. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. As we come to our message today, I'll invite you to turn in your scripture to the book of Genesis and in chapter 2, we're going to start our journey there. We're beginning this week a, uh, some, some, I guess you could call it a series, there's going to be some messages uh, around some Some of the most familiar of our Bible uh, passages. I kind of thought in my mind it would be something to the effect of uh, children's Sunday school revisited. I'm sure that if you grew... How many of you would say that you grew up going to Sunday school? Oh, okay. So most of you, okay, have a memory of being in Sunday school as, as a child. So these would be stories that somewhere along the way, in Sunday school, vacation Bible school, these would be very familiar to you. Um, my, my hope is that we will allow them to speak to us once again. Uh, I do not promise to you, nor do I pretend, that we're going to be unlocking some hidden treasures in these that are never before found. Uh, that would be quite pretentious of me to say that. Um, but... You know, some of these texts become so familiar to us then that they kind of fade into our memory as nothing more than just a children's story. And they very often hold things that are quite foundational to our Christian faith. And so maybe we'll be able to see them with fresh eyes, to uh, see things in there that maybe we had never noticed before. Um, I will not uh, ask you to uh, necessarily change your mind about something if if you're one of these people who comes to a text and you say well I've always believed it was like this and this is what it means that's fine you know I'm not going to shove you out of your comfort zone Uh, but perhaps as we walk through that we'll just be open to uh, perhaps see that the, the text is rich our Bible text is always rich and it says so much to us Uh, And we're going to begin this in the beginning, not with the six days of creation, but in Genesis chapter 2 as we move into the garden. And uh, I probably ought to qualify that by saying that uh, when you come to these early chapters of Genesis, there's there's so much scholarly difference of of opinion on how the text should be handled, what the text actually means, what it says. Uh, I, I don't... I, I absolutely don't want to get stuck in those traps. Um, you know, those are great scholarly things that you can pursue in your own time. Uh, so I'm not kind of. I'm going to try to navigate around all of those traps and basically just come to you with this: that 
The, the Bible for us is a, is a book that is very diverse. There are, there are a number of different genres of writing that you find in the Bible. The Bible is always faithful to bring to us truth. Regardless of what the genre of the writing is, it bears truth to us. But we have to be careful not to presume that we treat every genre of writing the same way. That would be a mistake. And so we come to this text in, in Genesis just recognizing that um, there, there's a lot of disagreement about it. I don't, I don't want to get into the, the disagreements about it, but perhaps just to let the text speak to us today and, and perhaps uh, hear a, a meaning that is brought to us. And so as we begin to read the text, uh, would you pray with me? Father, in these moments we give our hearts and our attention to the truth of your word, I pray God by the power and the leading of your Holy Spirit that it is your truth that would be known, that I would be speaking your truth, and that we would hear your truth. May everything that is false indeed quickly disappear. May that which is true find a place of lodging within our hearts. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to receive what you have for us this morning, holy God. May Jesus and Jesus alone be lifted up, be given praise and glory, for it is in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to start in Genesis 2 at verse 9. We're going to really work our way all the way through the end of chapter 3, but I promise you we're, we're going to skip over some of the parts, okay? There are too many places that we could get bogged down and to really give commentary to every verse along the way. We would be here until dinner time, and I know you, will, you won't have the... Uh, uh, you're not going to tolerate that. So we're going to kind of move through to some highlights. Genesis chapter 2 uh, begins by telling us God has created all things. Uh, God has created the man. He has put him in the garden. In verse 9 it says, Out of the garden of the Lord, out of, out of the ground, the Lord caused, caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Tree of, the tree of life also was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you skip over to verses 15 and 17, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it, to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. One of the things that I want for us to notice very quickly is in, in the verses that we just shared, God has created every tree in the garden. Uh, the text names for us two different trees, correct? Uh, he, he, it talks about trees in general, and then it names two two trees specifically, which are the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Correct? Everybody with me? All right. How many of those trees were prohibited? One. Okay. I realize that it's, it's, it's always something to be done with a bit of caution, but we observe that it's only one of those two specified trees that is prohibited not both. Keep that in the back of your mind, if you would, because it can inform how we hear this. God specifically prohibits the eating of 
not the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have great air conditioning systems in here, powerful enough to blow pages of the Bible. So God tells Adam, the one tree of which you are not supposed to eat is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now these trees come to, they, and I'm not saying that they're not literally trees, but there's symbolism in them, okay? We're going to get into that a little bit more. Uh, but these trees symbolize that which God has to give the one thing that God prohibits is the taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, the rest of the text of chapter 2 kind of uh, talks about some of the things that really aren't kind of relevant to what I want to get to this morning. When you get to chapter 3, then we get to the, uh, the this is the encounter. This is where things start to fall apart. Chapter 3 begins by saying, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You see how that question was kind of, it, it was uh, an open-ended kind of question that demanded more than a yes-no response. It had to be qualified, and it was, it was kind of a set-up question. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, we, we presume that this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. You see, she overstates the, the prohibition, but we'll maybe get to that in a moment. The serpent, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The text talks about the knowledge of good and evil, and when it does that, it is, it, it is going beyond just a, um, an intellectual knowledge, okay? You and I could say that I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and probably those who have had the most advanced math could probably argue that it could be something else too. Okay, but if we say I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then we're saying that that's knowledge that I have taken in, that that's, it's in my mind, I know that that is true. But when... When this text talks about the knowledge of good and evil, it's, it's talking about more than just knowing the difference between one thing and another. It is, it is saying something that is very broad, very comprehensive, if, if you will. It is talking about uh, wisdom. It's talking about understanding, an ability to comprehend and put things all together so that one sees all things clearly, okay? So the knowledge of good and evil is this really kind of a God perspective of being able to see all things that need to be weighed and put them in proper place. A very good question for us this morning would be to remember, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> where wisdom begins 
And let me break it down into another question. What is the proper way that we are told for us to gain wisdom? The Bible does tell us, and I'll remind you what the Bible text says, that the beginning of the wisdom, that, that wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You'll find that statement in Psalm 111, verse 10. You'll find it in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. You'll find it stated in other ways in various other texts of the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Holding God in his proper place is where wisdom starts. That is the source, if you will, that is the way that we are told that we are to gain wisdom. And so you can set in your mind that what Adam and Eve have done is to go about gaining wisdom in the improper way. They have, they have broken God's paradigm, if you will. God has set up a paradigm in which he has asked them to do one thing. For the, for the knowledge, for the wisdom that you need to live your life, trust me. Don't try to go get it yourself. Don't try to be your own source of gaining the wisdom that you need. Trust me. Look to me first, and then all things will will work out fine. Trust is, 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 a, is a powerful thing between uh, a, a, a child and a parent. There's a picture that I know you can see in your mind. It's very likely for, for many of you that this is played out for you either as a parent or as a child. Picture, if you will, a small, a small child of you know, modest age standing on the edge of a swimming pool. Okay? very apprehensively, floaties on the arm, you know. And there's a parent in the pool <clears throat> with his or her arms outstretched, mother or father, saying, jump. I'll do what? I'll catch you, okay? <clears throat> the child is very likely apprehensive, okay? There, there's kind of a built-in fear. It's like, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know if I should do this or not. <clears throat> what is it that gets the child over the edge? It's trust, isn't it? It's trust that what the parent, the father or the mother says is going to be true. Otherwise, there, there's this built-in apprehension. That may not be a perfect picture, but it's not a bad picture for what God has set up for his created order. He said, I'm giving you so much, but for the, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight that you are going to need to, to live, to exist, to be able to thrive in life, never get ahead of me. Never get beyond me. Never go past me. Look to me. Trust in me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that is not to be afraid of the Lord, but it is to give the Lord his proper place. That we look always for him, for his wisdom, that keeps us where we need to be. It guards us against our own undoing, which is really what happened after they went past God and took the fruit. They went beyond God, took for themselves the initiative to gain wisdom in a way that God said, don't get it, 
And then look what happens to them. <clears throat> Let's pick up in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and, I, and so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I mean, well, God knew the answer to that, right? But think about the power of the question. Who, how did you come to know about your nakedness. Now there too, I want to go a, another level. We get stuck on the naked part, all right? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for nudist camps, that kind of freedom, you know, like going back to the, hey, you know, I'm not advocating for any of that stuff. The, their nakedness itself represents something deeper, which is vulnerability. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm not going to ask for raised hands, but my guess is that many of you have had the dream. At some point in your life, you dream that you're in some public place without clothes on. I know you have. You know, out on the street in some room where all of these people are gathered, if you've ever had that dream, and I'm not a dream analyst, I'm not Daniel, I'm not trying to get in your mind, but the reaction in that is, oh my gosh, it's, you know, you, you start scrambling for cover. You want to find something to cover yourself, you want to flee from the room. And that, that reaction comes out of a sense of vulnerability, that, that we are somehow vulnerable now to, to at least the eyes and the thoughts and, and to those around us. So it's not just that we have no clothes on, it's that we've some, suddenly become vulnerable. That, that idea of vulnerability is in the Hebrew text. Many scholars will find in Hebrew is a, is a word where very often uh, the way things are written in Hebrew, you find words that play off of each other because they have such a similar uh, nature to one another. The word in the text that defines the serpent as being crafty is quite similar to the word that describes Adam and Eve as being naked. Almost as if to suggest that it was at their point of vulnerability that the craftiness of the serpent came in and leveraged. They were naked before. They were vulnerable before. But the thing that changed is that now their vulnerability becomes a factor. Whereas it wasn't previously. Their vulnerability was not a factor as long as they had God 
in his proper place. When they went outside of God's paradigm, something changed. And now, all of a sudden, their vulnerability becomes a factor. There are consequences when we shift God's paradigm. The text will go ahead and spell out some of the, the, the consequences. Uh, this thing keeps turning the page on me. Um, and I'm not going to read all of this. If you uh, read on, verse 10, of course, verses 12 and 13 are Adam and Eve, and they're going, but it wasn't my fault, you know, it was her fault. And she says, but it wasn't my fault, the serpent made me do it. We've all visited that, right? You read on there, verses 14 through uh, 17, 18, 19. These are the consequences uh, from their disobedience. The consequences, if you will, because they have changed God's paradigm. Let me see if I can give you an illustration to, to get across what I mean by that. Picture, if you will, and I'm going to say this. I don't have anybody in particular in mind, so if, you sound, if this sounds strangely like your home, it's not intentional. It's just you know, a scenario in my mind. Picture, if you will, an 18-year-old boy who comes to his dad one day. 18-year-old boy still living in mom and dad's house, still enjoying mom and dad's food, still enjoying the bed and the comforts, the heating, air conditioning in mom and dad's house. But the 18-year-old boy says to dad, you know, I'm a man now. This has never happened to any of you all, right? You know, I'm a man now, and so uh, I think I'm, I'm going to start... You know, I'm going to start living my life. I'm going to start making some of my own decisions. And so that curfew, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to adhere to that anymore. I'm going to have a lot more freedom to come and, kind of come and go as I want. I'm just letting you know that. Okay? Imagine the son's reaction when dad says, well, okay, um, if that's the way it is, uh, you know that car of mine that you've been driving around? I want the keys back. And the son says, what? Well, wait a minute. And dad says, well, wait a minute. Okay, you're changing the paradigm on me. So don't be surprised when not everything else stays the same. Okay, so if we're changing things, we're going to change things. And that really is what God does. Let me go back to the trees for a moment. You remember we had two specific trees, right? What were they? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. How many of them were prohibited? Just one. Now I'm going to share with you, and I'm not asking you to swallow this because it probably goes against the way you've always read this text. There are scholars who would suggest, not adamantly say, but suggest that possibly up to this point that Adam and Eve have been eating from the tree of life. Now, what, what God says in verse 22 might challenge that to some degree. We'll get there in a moment. But it's at least within the large realm of possibility. Also, when you consider the fact that we might not always read this in the way that it necessarily means for us to read it. We, I think, I think I'm safe on this, that we usually have this image of eating of the tree of life is that one bite changes everything. You know, 
like from a, from a Disney fairy tale, like, you know, one kiss from the prince will wake her up, or one bite from the apple and all of a sudden everything. But the text doesn't necessarily demand a reading like that. In fact, you could just as well read it that what the tree of life symbolizes is the ongoing life-giving presence that God gives to his creation. Eternal, abundant, full life is not something that it just like a one bite and now everything is different. It's an ongoing God-feeding opportunity that God provided his people, which is not unreasonable given the fact that God put them in the garden and did not prohibit the eating of it. It's food for thought. Okay? The thing that he prohibited was the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't go beyond me for the wisdom and knowledge that you need to lead your life. When they did that, God said, okay, paradigm has now changed. Read with me in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Two trees put together. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So the Lord drove the man out at the east of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to eternal life. Now I told you I'm, I'm very open to kind of diverse ways of reading text. I'm, I'm very flexible in that. But there are some ways that I'm going to suggest to you that are just absolutely wrong. One of the ways of reading this text that I, I would have to say just comes out of a modern way of thinking is to celebrate the act of Adam and Eve's disobedience. It's a way of thought that comes out of seeing God as this evil despot whose only goal is to oppress his creation. He's being cruel to them by not letting them have freedom of choice. And so there are people who, yes, have actually written, it was good for Eve. She stood up to that evil deity and, and would not be... Uh, deprived of her right to make a choice of her own. May I say to you, I don't know how you read the text like that. I do not know how you read the text and, and, and somehow this choice turned out to be a good one. It's, I, I just, I don't see how you do that. But it's been said, it's also been said that somehow God became afraid of what Adam and Eve had now become, as if God's sovereignty is now challenged. I'll be a little more gracious. You could possibly read that in verse 22. But think about it for a moment. Let me just frame it the way I would. I want you to picture <clears throat> how much God is at risk. Now, we're talking about the God who spoke 
by the power of his word, all things into creation. The trees of the garden, the, the animals who filled the garden, Adam and Eve in themselves, the, the sun, the moon, the, all these things God spoke into being. Okay, we're talking about that kind of God. And now you're going to suggest to me that his sovereignty is at risk by a man and a woman? That seems to be a stretch. It is true that you and I, we always have the freedom to rebel against God's sovereignty. But you and I never have one ounce of power to change God's sovereignty. Not now, not ever. A God who is at risk from a man and a woman is not the God of the Scripture. So God's reaction is not done out of God being all of a sudden afraid that he is going to be usurped by his creation. God's actions come out of the need to keep things in the order that he has given. And we need to always remember that God is always a God who seeks to give his creation life. The problem is that when, is that so often God's creatures, you and I, Adam and Eve, choose independence over obedience. I'll say that again. The problem comes when we choose independence over obedience. You see, this is what happened in the garden. They chose, rather than being obedient to God, they were going to be independent of God. God said it doesn't work that way. God is a God of freedom. But freedom in God, freedom in Christ, is always freedom to be obedient. Obedient to the Holy Spirit, obedient to the way of Christ. And somehow we in our minds get crossed up and think that being obedient somehow is not real freedom. And we live in a country, and man, I love, I love this country. I'm not saying anything against this country. But perhaps against, you know, a caution against a culture that cherishes, sometimes above everything else, independence. We really have to think about where independence gets us when we're talking about independence from God. I came across a little uh, quote that I wanted to share with you today. It comes out of a book that's written by Charles Colson and Nancy Piercy called how now shall we live? It's interesting that the book was published in 2004, 16 years ago. You realize that not, not much has changed. But this is what they say. 
All the ideologies, all the utopian promises that have marked this century have proven utterly bankrupt. Americans have achieved what modernism presented as life's great shining purpose, individual autonomy, the right to do what one chooses. Yet this has not produced the promised freedom. Instead, it has led to the loss of community and civility, to kids shooting kids in schoolyards, to citizens huddling in gated communities for protection. We have discovered that we cannot live with the chaos that inevitably results from choice divorced from morality. Let me say that last statement again. We have discovered that we cannot live with the chaos that inevitably results from choice divorced from morality. And I would just change one word in there so that it goes with our text from today without changing the meaning at all. Choice divorced from wisdom. God's wisdom. God's knowledge. You see, this is what happened in the garden. That choice of being independent from God did not work out. It was not going to work out. And we've been suffering ever since. It doesn't work out for us today. But we still live in a, in a culture where we're convinced that our own independence is the greatest thing for which we could strive. It's not. We are people who are taught to be dependent on God. That's where things went wrong in the garden. And the only way to recover that is to put God back in his right place. Now the beautiful thing about this is that God never abandoned his creation. Even in, in verse 21 it says, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and, and his wife and clothed them. Getting ready, knowing that they were going to be put out into a new environment... He did not abandon them. He, put, he made for them thing, clothing, if you will, that would, be, that would prepare them, protect them in this new environment in which they were going. He did not abandon them. He never intended to abandon them. And it's also wonderful to know that God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ never was a plan B. Do you know what a plan B is? What is a plan B? It's something you do when plan A doesn't work, right? Okay? If you ever read the Bible and say, well, you know, Jesus' death on the cross was plan B because plan A didn't work, don't read that. That's... God knew the way it was going to go. Jesus was plan A all along. God's redemption. And, and Jesus is this life giver that... that, that brings us back to access to the tree of life that symbolizes light, God's ongoing life-giving. Visit with me, if you would, the book of Revelation. Just real quick, would you turn over to the back of your Bible? See, I can say I preach Genesis to Revelation in one, one summer, summer morning. Revelation chapter 2. There's just a couple of places here I want you to see. Uh, the chapter begins... These are the letters to the seven churches. The first letter is, is uh, well, it's a message, it's not a letter, uh, to the church of Ephesus. Uh, and God, the angel of, uh, of the Lord, gives this, um, 
message, and it says in verse 7, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He uses that image. What is it he's saying to the churches? God's ultimate goal for you is going to be back to the tree. He's going to bring you back. He's going to redeem you. It's life-giving. Turn, turn over to chapter 22. Okay, last chapter. In chapter 1 begins uh, the, the vision of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God that comes down out of heaven. It goes on in chapter tw 22 describing this. Uh, 22 begins and it says, He showed me the river of the water of life clear as a crystal coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was what? The tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I love that image. Once again, what is God leading us back to? The tree of life. Look again in verse 14, same chapter. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. You see, it's woven all the way through that in Jesus Christ, what is God doing? He's bringing us back to where his creation began. He's bringing us back to that ongoing, never-ending, never-failing, life-giving presence of God. Right? The, the, there are probably a lot of messages you could pull out of Genesis chapters 2 and 3, but it just seems to me one that rises to the top is, that, that is this danger of prioritizing our independence over obedience. You see, that's where it broke down. When, when God did not have his proper place and we went around him, and God, by putting Adam and Eve out of the garden of paradise, was showing them it's not going to work that way. He has to be in his proper place. And I think that's a message that is as powerful for us today as it ever was. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that uh, you preserve these texts that we might uh, know the truth. The truth of uh, where we as people went wrong. The truth also of how you've sought to put things back together. God, I thank you that you are a redeeming God. I thank you that you've never stopped loving us even when we have rebelled against you. I thank, I thank you that you care for us even when we find ourselves in states of rebellion. Father, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you've created a tree of life, your ongoing, beautiful, life-giving presence. How wonderful it is for us when we have access to that. And so we look forward to a day, God, when we um, enjoy that holy city, being in your presence, eating of your tree. And we thank you, God, that you offer us that life even now, and that we might have a foretaste of that which we will yet enjoy fully. And we thank you above all for Jesus. He is the one who makes it possible for us. Help us to not forget the lessons, Father the lesson of uh, the consequences when you are not in your proper place in our lives. And God, if there's one 
Lord, anyone right now, Lord, that you're not in the proper place, I pray that you would um, help that person to have a soft heart, uh, an awareness, God, of what needs to change, and that we might gain wisdom first and foremost out of a healthy fear of the Lord. Father, we ask all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.